Amen. Amen. Mississippi, we say amen, eh, right? But it's uh, great to be with you. What an honor to be your interim preacher uh, until God sends to you the man that he has already selected. He just doesn't know it yet uh, for you. And uh, we consider this a high honor. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Travis. You've prepared our hearts now twice to worship through the proclamation of the Word of God. The Sunday we came to be introduced to you, I told somebody we hugged so many necks. It was like old home week. Uh, you know, that's the, I guess that's the benefit, if you can call it that, of being around since, uh, you know, right after the Civil War and pastoring so many wonderful churches and having so many friends. So it's great to see old friends, our friends from old, I won't call them old friends, Richard, and, uh, um, and to meet new friends. What a great blessing. Be turning in your New Testament to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be considering together all eight of those first eight verses, but uh, I just pray that our time here with you will be a helpful pilgrimage for you. The poet said, isn't it strange that princes and kings, clowns that caper in sawdust rings and common people like you and me are builders for eternity. To each is given a bag of tools, a shapeless mass and a book of rules with which to build ere life is gone, a stumbling block or a stepping stone. And it's my prayer that our journey here with you, however long or short it may be, would serve to be a stepping stone in your own personal pilgrimage and walk with Christ and corporately in your life as a church. I question today on, on this first sermon, what would be the most important thing that I could share with you? And so I've taken a text that embodies really the testimony of your interim preacher. But it also embodies what I think is perhaps the most important truth, if I had only one, that I could drop in your heart, because it will color everything else. When I tell you what it is, you'll think it's rather simplistic. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, the end of that text, which we'll read in the English Standard Version in just a moment, but I've memorized all these verses through the years of the King James. So let me just share that with you. In verse 8, King James said, whom having not seen, you love. In whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You notice that phrase, whom having not seen, you love. Peter had seen Jesus, but the people to whom he was writing under heavy persecution had not seen Jesus in the flesh. But Peter says, you love Jesus. And so I came to this conclusion that the greatest thing I could do for you in this interim period is if I could somehow help you to love Jesus more. 
Now, that may sound simplistic. You might say, well, you need to deal with deeper theology, like, you know, like discipleship and, and stewardship and churchmanship. And I agree with that. And hopefully in the days ahead, as God gives us time, we will deal with some of those weighty matters of, of the Christian life. But it, always, it all has to begin here. Because it doesn't matter whatever else you do, if you don't love Jesus Christ, it's just sounding brass. It's a tinkling cymbal is the way Paul put it. You remember Jesus was asked on one occasion, he said, what's the greatest commandment of all? Remember what he said? If you, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In other words, the first thing, the first call of God is to love him back. We love him, don't we? Because he, what, first loved us. And so it's a natural, spontaneous response of faith to, to what God has done that we love him. Now, Peter knew that. And so he's writing to this church that's deeply troubled. And he's trying to encourage them in the faith. And he's trying to encourage them to not stop loving Jesus just because you're going through a hard time. You see, Jesus really gave Peter two major questions in his life exam. If you study the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus really asked Peter two questions, major questions. The first one had to do with his person. Remember, he said to Peter and to the other disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was a question that's highly important because if he misses that question, he misses the kingdom of God. For Paul has said that we're to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we shall be saved. So this is a question that eternity hangs on. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter responded, you know, Elijah says this, and one of the other prophets, Jeremiah, says this. But Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And so that, that's an important question this morning. And I, we don't have time to develop that question, but, but it's important. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he to you the Son of God, God incarnate, who came and lived among us, who modeled for us what it means to be in relationship to the Father, and then died at the end of that, of that uh, ministry and stayed dead for three, three days and came alive again? That's who he is. But that wasn't the last question. The last question was this. Jesus appeared to Peter in a post-resurrection appearance and called him to breakfast. And during that personal interview... Jesus asked Peter another question. Remember what it was? Peter, what church? Do you love me? Remember? Three times. Peter, do you love me? Now I want to suggest to you, and my prayer is that this morning, that question will resonate in your heart. And I ask you this morning, my brothers, my sisters, my friends that are here this morning, Precious unbeliever that's here, maybe seeking. You know what I want for you? I want you to come to love and know my Savior. And I'll just ask you this. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Now, notice, I didn't ask you, do you love uh, Longview Point Baptist Church? 
you, you probably do or you wouldn't be here this morning. I'm not asking you, do, the love, do you love the church? I, I'm not asking you, do you love preaching? I'm, I'm not asking you, do you love your small group? Do you love to sing in the choir? Do you love being a deacon? Do you even love being a staff member? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you this simple question. Do you love, present tense, Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, did you used to love him? But I'm asking you, do you today love Jesus Christ? Let me just say to you, love changes everything. Doesn't it? Love changes everything. When I was 15 years old, I changed high schools. I, I moved from uh, a school that we had uh, seven boys in our class uh, to a school that had 38. We moved to the big school, 38. And, uh, and I, I was so sad. I'd left a, a girlfriend my daddy had gotten a job in another county. I left a girlfriend I thought I couldn't live without. And, uh, but I was a basketball player, and I was real happy to be at this new school because they were known for a good basketball school. And so I remember I was sad, but I went to basketball practice that first day. And th my new friend, he also played on the team, was standing right by me. And we got into the gym about the time the girls were leaving. And, and this beautiful little black-headed girl walked in front of me, leaving basketball practice. And I turned to my friend and I said, who was that? And he said to me, that's my sister. <laughs> well, I want you to know that was 56 years ago. And pardon my English, but I ain't got over it yet. I know some of you are wondering how I got such a beautiful wife. Well, let me just tell you, it's none of your business. But, but I got her. And love changed my life. You know that girl I left? She was a sweet girl. But you know what? I soon forgot her. I soon forgot her. Now, my wife's family loved, were afraid of storms. And every Saturday night we had a date. It would come up a storm. Guess where we spent our first three dates? In the storm house with her whole clan. Now, here's the thing. If you love somebody enough, you even... You want to be with them when you go through the storm. Now, now I'm just telling you this. A few, actually a few months after that, I fell in love with somebody else. I fell in love with Jesus Christ. And six weeks before I graduated from high school, in a revival service in the spring of 1964, the Lord changed my life. And I fell in love with Jesus. Jesus and Rose have changed my life. Now, Peter tells us in this text that we're to, even though we haven't seen him, we are to love him. Now, the text there, beginning at verse 1 and going down to, to verse 7, tells us the reasons why Peter uh, tells us that he loved Jesus. And I just want to say to you, they're the same reasons that I love Jesus Christ. So let's just catalog them. If you're filling in the blank in your bulletin, let me, let me uh, share with you first of all that I love Jesus Christ because of His grace. Notice what it says in verse 1. He says, he says that we have been chosen in Christ, that we've been chosen. Another translation uses the word elect. 
Now, those two words shouldn't frighten us because they are wonderful words. They're words that had been used exclusively up until this time of the nation of Israel and the Jews. Those were words that referred to God's choice of Israel to be the nation to become a kingdom of priests through whom He would reveal His law and through eventually He would bring His Savior. So these were words that were identified with the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. But here Peter uses that same word not to refer to the Jewish nation, but to refer to a group of Gentile believers that were scattered out all over the world. And he, he uses that word to encourage them because they are being persecuted for their faith. And so he says to them, listen, you have not been excluded from God's wonderful redemptive plan. You are just as much a part of my salvific plan as is the nation of Israel. Now, before you jump to conclusions, I want you to know that I live with unresolved tension in my theology. And I think that's probably the best place to be because, you see, I also believe that if I, if I go to hell, I can't blame God for it. That the choice is mine, and I am held accountable to God for responding to the gospel by faith. So there is both the sovereignty of God, and there is the responsibility of man. Somebody says, how do you reconcile those two? As Spurgeon used to say, I never try to reconcile friends. Somehow God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is all very clear in the mind of God. God's thoughts are not my thoughts, and His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are higher than mine, and His ways are higher than mine. So I don't have any problem with that. I just lay it at God's feet. And I, I, you know, I just believe it's my responsibility to share the gospel and call on people to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that whosoever believeth in Him shall be saved. So I believe uh, that the grace of God is cause for me to love Jesus. Aren't you glad that God didn't say, now, get out there and do your best. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, then you can go to heaven. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? But God's grace, you know what his grace is? God's riches at Christ's expense. I, I love that word he uses. He uses the word uh, that they were chosen. When I was a kid, I loved basketball. Now, it wasn't very big. When I was in the seventh grade, I weighed about, I played on a 100-pound team until I was in the eighth grade. So that shows you how skinny I was. And, and so I, I, I was just a skinny kid, but I loved basketball. And at my school, if the basketball went flat, we canceled school for that day. I mean, it was a big deal in, the, in rural Mississippi then. And so I loved basketball. Every Saturday, I would go up to the gym and they would have pickup basketball games. And they would have the best players would always choose up sides. And one of the players was always Coach Chisholm. The other player was a, a former college player. And they would choose sides. And I would go, but I never got chosen. <laughs> I mean, who's going to choose a 93-pound weakling, you know? But the only time I ever got to play was when somebody would get tired and they'd say, Tommy, go in and play for me for a few minutes. Give me a rest. And I'd get to go in and play. And I would watch every move those great ball players would make. I'd try to imitate them on my own, you know, and learn. Well, something happened in the ninth grade. 
I shot up like a stick. I went up to six foot three. I, I, all of a sudden, I got strong. I got to where I could leap. I could, I could. And so one day, I'm in the gym with the, all these other guys. And Coach Chisholm looked at me, and he said, Tommy, I choose you. Man. Man. You know what that made me want to do? That made me want to do say, man, I'm chosen. I'm sloughing off. I'm chosen. I'm not going to work hard. I'm chosen. I'm not going to guard hard. I'm not going to run fast. I'm not going to jump high. I'm not going to shoot good. You think that's true? If you think that's true, I got some swamp land up in Wisconsin I want to sell you. You know that's not true. What did I want to do? I wanted to play my heart out. I wanted to Run fast, guard hard, shoot better, jump higher. Why? Because he had chosen me. Now, the metaphor breaks down along the way, and I know that, and I'm not trying to say that that arbitrariness carries over, but here's what I'm trying to say, that if I'm a child of God, if I know that God has saved me by his grace, then that makes me want to love him and serve him. I don't have to beg people to come to church. I don't have to beg people to give. I don't have to beg people to serve. I don't have to beg people to share the gospel. If they love Jesus the way they ought to, it comes out of spontaneity. Grace. I love him. Number two, don't get nervous. I I don't spend as much time on the next one. Number two, I love him because he empowers me. Look what he says in verse 2. It says, we're set apart for sanctification by the Spirit. Why? For obedience. Set apart for sanctification. You see, the Lord saves us by His grace. But He didn't just save us to get us out of earth into heaven when we die. That's not the full extent of salvation. Salvation is not to get us out of heaven when we die only. It's to get God out of heaven right now in us. You see, true salvation means that God comes to inhabit our humanity with His Spirit and empower us to live out what He calls us to do. Notice what He says, set apart for sanctification by the Spirit for what? For obedience. That, that means that the righteousness which God requires, listen to me, is the righteousness which God provides. The righteousness which God asks for is the righteousness which God gives to me. So that I, I love him because he didn't just say to me, listen, you're saved now, do the best you can. But he saved me and then he gave me his spirit. The Bible says if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. The Bible says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He empowers me. That's the difference in the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. Old Testament law told us what to do, but it didn't give us the power to do it. And so we we, we lived under the condemnation that we got to keep all the law all the time. But you see, in the New Testament, Every, every command is a promise. God says, thou shalt, and then he says, and I'll help you to do it. It goes like this, work and do the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But a sweeter song the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So I love him because 
He empowers me. The righteousness which He requires is the righteousness which He provides. I, I remember one day I was preaching at Lee Wood when I pastored there, and a man came in to the services we had never seen before. He kind of reminded me of Johnny Cash. He was dressed in black from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he walked in and he sat on the very back row on the right side. And I preached that day, and as I always do, I extended an invitation. And uh, when I gave the invitation, I mean as soon as the first note started the invitation, he stepped out and he walked down the aisle. And and, and as I always do, I, I walked down off the podium and I took a couple of steps toward him and I stuck out my hand. And when I did, he did this number. He reached behind him, and he pulled out about an eight-inch blade. And my heart almost stopped. As you can imagine, I didn't know what he was going to do with that blade. But I already had my hand stuck out, and he took the blade, and he put it in my hand. And this is what he said. He said, I have lived by this blade all of my life, and I'm sick and tired of it. Can you help me? I'm so glad that my advice to him wasn't, well, sir, I'm glad you want to live a better life. You know what you need to do? You, need, you just need to work real hard. You need, you need to draw on every ounce of your willpower. And, and you need to stop living that way. Don't do it anymore. Now, how would that have helped him? All that would have done was add to his problem. You see, you can't never, you can, can't never, (laughs) strike that from the minutes. You, You can't, you can't legislate in the power to live out the law. It has to come from God's power. So I'm glad I could say to him, listen, Jesus Christ can give you the power to live a new life. Some of you may be here and you need to hear that today. You know, I love him because he empowers me. Number three, I love him because he defeated my worst enemy. My worst enemy was death. Listen to what he says. Who who has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul in writing to the Corinthian church said in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Hey, the truth is Jesus Christ conquered death. When he rose from the dead. And because he has conquered death, he says, because I live, you shall live also. So I, I'm grateful. I, I have a, a, my older sister is in Pascagoula, Mississippi uh, on respirator right now. We don't know if she's going to live or not. But w- one thing we, we, we do know is this, that God has given us a dying hope. And we know that if she lives or if she dies, that death has been conquered. That the instant she, she leaves this body, she has the hope of being in the presence of Jesus Christ, her Lord. So I, I love him because he defeated my worst enemy. A number of years ago, Rose and I went to Korea to do a series of, of meetings, evangelistic effort. And uh, the churches there had prepared um, very, very detailed preparation for us to come. In fact, they had set up appointments with unbelievers for us to go and share the gospel. And so we would go to businesses, we would go to homes, 
We went to a lot of places to share the gospel. And many of those places, the, the, the unbelievers would have their family with them because they wanted their family to be there when they got saved. It was the beatenest thing I'd ever seen. They were anticipating that they were going to be saved. And we would go and share the gospel. We had a little track, Korean on one side, English on the other. And, you know, we didn't know a bit of Korean. They didn't know any English. But we would just read and they would read, read and they would read. And then they would pray to receive Christ. You know, the first 13 people I shared the gospel with were saved. And so it troubled me a little bit. I went back to the pastor. And I said, Pastor, why did you spend, why, why, why did we spend all this money and ride, ride fly 10,000 miles to come and pull ripe fruit? I said, that's the ripest fruit I've ever seen in my life. They were ready to get saved. He said, you don't understand. He said, you're an American. He said, if it weren't for Americans, we would be communist today. But because you defeated our worst enemy, we will listen to you. My precious friend, Jesus Christ defeated your worst enemy and my worst enemy. We need to listen to him. I love him because he defeated my worst enemy. Number four, I love him because he put me in his will. <laughs> I love him because he's made me rich. Notice what he says, verse four, he gave me an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and that fades not away. That's the same word for inheritance that the, the, the Hebrews had for when they would go to the land of Canaan or the promised land. And so he's saying here that he enriches us because he's given us the hope of heaven, a hope that will never, ever fade away. And notice what he says, it's reserved in heaven. In other words, nobody can steal it from us. I've been pastor a long, long time. I've seen so many precious senior adults that have saved with the intent of leaving an inheritance for their children. But the end of life expenses, nursing homes, hospitals, all of those health issues would eat up their inheritance and they'd have nothing left. But listen, Jesus said, I've left you an inheritance that nothing can steal from you. He said, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. Folks, I love Jesus because of heaven. I love him. He's given me an inheritance in heaven. I want to recommend a book to you if you haven't read it, uh, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. You may not agree with everything in it. He, he uh, expands on a lot of things, but it's a wonderful book. Rose and I went to the Billy Graham uh, place up in North Carolina to hear him teach that book. And when we got up there, the, the room was full. And uh, I looked around. And I saw a lot of folks like me, uh, follically deprived. And I, I saw a lot of, of, of guys, gray hair, a lot of older folks. And Richard, I, I looked at Rose and I said, you know, th this is a group of folks that are cramming for the finals. <laughs> we want to know where we're going to spend eternity. I love Jesus. Because he put me in his will.
Now, number four, I love Jesus. Or rather, number five, I, I love Jesus Christ because he protects me. Just a word on this one. I don't need to spend much time. Notice what he says in verse five. We are kept by the power of God. See, he not only keeps our inheritance safe, he keeps us safe for the inheritance. We are kept by the power of God. In other words, the guard is never changed. It's on duty 24 hours a day. Jude 1 says we are preserved. I love that word. We are preserved. I know a lot of Baptists that are pickled. But Jude says we are preserved. Amen? We are preserved. God keeps us. Well, here's my last point. I'm through. I love this one. I think, I think he said everything else to get to this. He said in verses 6 and 7, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what I've just talked about. The knowledge of heaven, the fact that we're kept, the fact that we have an inheritance, the fact that we're chosen, all of that. He said in that you rejoice. That ought to make you rejoice. That ought to make you happy to know that. But then he says, though now, uh-oh, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, what incredible truth. You know what he's saying here? I love Jesus because he gives purpose to my suffering. He gives purpose to my suffering. You know the hardest thing about suffering is when it seems to be random and when it seems to be meaningless, right? When our suffering seems to have no reason, when our suffering just seems to come out of nowhere, it's random. But he tells us here two things about suffering, just two words I want you to drop in your heart. Number one, our suffering is for a season. It won't go on always. I know you feel like it. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. And you think, will this ever end? Hey, he says, for a little while. Now, a little while may be a month. It may be a week. It may be a year. It may be a decade. Because, you see, he's comparing it to eternity. Johnny Erickson, who's written probably the best on heaven I've ever read, and who's been a paraplegic now for half a century, she says, it, it, it seems like a long time that I've been a paraplegic. But she said, compared to heaven, it's just a bleep on the radar screen. Number one, my suffering is for a season. So is yours. The light at the end of the tunnel, hey, it doesn't have to be a freight train. God is going to use it. Number two, not only is it for a season, it's for a reason. He says, I'm working through your trials to purify you like I put fire to the gold simply to get rid of the impurities. The gold is not hurt by the fire. The gold is made more beautiful by the fire. So he gives me purpose in my suffering. Warren Wiersbe says he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will permit us to suffer. He will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone. My dear friend, are you going through a hard time today? 
I want to encourage you. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purposes. Why? Because God is using everything He allows to come into our life to further His purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So there's reason enough to love Him, is it not? I hope you love Him. I hope you love Him. If you love Him, you want to spend time with Him. If you love Him, you want others to know about Him. If you love Him, you love to be around Him, and you love to be with Him. Michael Joyce had Alzheimer's. He and Linda had been married for 38 years. But he had forgotten it. He had forgotten that he was married. Linda would come and visit him every day. And an amazing thing happened. Michael fell in love with Joyce. He didn't know she was already his wife. He just knew he loved her. And one day Michael said to Joyce, will you marry me? And to appease him, she said, why, yes, I'll marry you, thinking that he would forget it by the next day. But when she came in the next day, he said, when are we going to do this? When are we going to get married? And that put into motion plans for Michael and Joyce, who lived in New Zealand in January of this year, 2018, to go down to a beautiful lake close to their home, And there they said their vows to one another. You see, Michael Joyce really didn't remember much. He remembered only one thing. He loved Linda. And he wanted to be married to her. My dear friend, if you can only remember one thing, My wife says I may be moving toward that. I can't think of anything better to remember. Now, I love Jesus. I've been into hundreds of nursing homes in this last half a century. I've seen people roll into the worship service who couldn't even get back to their room, who who didn't know their room number, who can't sit up in the chair without strapping them in. They don't remember their name. And we'll start worshiping. And we'll start singing. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. And we go on and sing that precious old hymn. And then when we come to the chorus, something magical happens. Their mouths start moving. And they start singing with me. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Friend, if you can only remember one thing, I hope it's that. That you love Jesus.